Welcome to The Lisa Show. Now, uh... The death of uh, Jeffrey Epstein, the succession of mass shootings, people are suspicious mm-hmm. about acts that, that happen in the news. Um, current events for sure fuel the flame of conspiracy theories. Nothing surprises us anymore, right? We've all heard about Area 51, the moon landing being staged. Um, rumors like this have been circulating around society since the beginning of time. Uh, one study found that half of the U.S. population believes at least one conspiracy theory. Um, <laughs> I will admit, in my home, this is a hot topic. Yeah. Yeah, you got, you've got I some... am a person of science. <laughs> I believe Buzz Aldrin is an American hero okay. okay, who should be believed. But it it is interesting that when you watch the news and discuss it with people, how often people will go, oh, really? Like, yeah, but. But, but is it? And just offer that, that societal cue in the conversation that's just like, is this a safe place to talk about what we really know? Yeah. Or, <laughs> or what do I really we? feel? Yes. Yep. So uh, knowing that half the population believes in at least one conspiracy theory, what is that appeal? Why do so many people believe in them? Well, we've invited a professor who studies the very psychology behind conspiracy theories, Mike Wood, to help us understand our fascination with these theories. Welcome, Mike. Hi, thanks for having me on. So what exactly are we talking about? What defines a conspiracy theory? Okay, so you're starting with the hard question here. Yes. Because nobody actually can yes. agree on this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you ask um, philosophers about this, they'll tell you that people use the phrase conspiracy theory to kind of mean a belief that they consider kind of wacky that somebody else believes in. Um, Nobody wants to say that, you know, I'm a conspiracy theorist. I love conspiracy theories. Everyone wants to apply this term to to what somebody else believes. So it's it's almost an insult. Um, And, you know, there's some people who say, well, any any theory about a conspiracy is a conspiracy theory because that's what the words mean. Mm -hmm. But then it's like if you're if you're a, a, you know, a prosecutor and you're trying to say that some gang was conspiring to rob a bank, that makes you a conspiracy theorist. And most people would say that doesn't really fit how you use the word. Right. Um, Because, you know, that's the that's what the crime is called. It's called conspiracy to, you know, commit a robbery or to commit some some sort of crime so uh, the way that i usually define it which i think gets kind of close to to how people tend to use the word mostly is is saying that uh, the real cause of something is is hidden it's something's being covered up there's some sort of lie that's being sold to the public and and the real truth is hidden away and it's actually much more sinister than than we've been led to believe I, i think that that kind of fits how most people use the word okay so how are these created how do they gain so much traction well so I, I, you were talking about Epstein earlier, and I think that that's actually a great example of how these conspiracy theories can happen because they're not usually constructed, I don't think. Usually they kind of suggest themselves because I I know that when I saw in the news, oh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein dies in prison, parent suicide. I, I saw that and I, I thought, hmm, really? <laughs> Uh, and and that was that was my sort of initial instinctive reaction, and I think that's where a lot of conspiracy theories come from. And you know, maybe you can go back on that later. And you know, now I think that that one's perhaps not super likely. But I, a lot of it is just you have a particular uh, way that you expect the world to work, or a way that you expect things to happen, and then you interpret what happens through that lens. And so you interpret things in a way that that matches what you already believe. Sometimes mm. that requires a conspiracy theory to get there. Sometimes you have to say, well, what we think happened didn't really happen because that you know maybe that goes against what I believe in 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 some area. You know, uh, like for example, if my chosen candidate doesn't win an election, you know, maybe I start to come up with conspiracy theories about, um, you know, how that uh, might have happened. Um, maybe they didn't really lose maybe because obviously I'm, I have good politics and everybody should agree with me. So how could my candidate lose an election? And so then election conspiracy theories get started. So a lot of it is just based on worldviews, I think. Are, are there uh, types of conspiracy theories that are more likely to be uh, believed or more prevalent? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there are certain conspiracy theories that people take, uh, more seriously and, and 
generally that they tend to be about events or uh, sort of circumstances that don't have a very good official explanation for them. Mm -hmm. Conspiracy theories are really common right after something happens um, because people are still trying to figure out what's going on. And if you have a, a sort of conspiratorial mindset, you tend to believe a lot of conspiracy theories. Chances are you can find some kind of way to interpret that in a conspiratorial way when there's a, a lack of information out there, when there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and, and that tends to make conspiracy theories thrive in, the, in that climate of uncertainty. So anything where it's a little bit ambiguous, that helps a lot. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that ambiguity, because, it, you know, I'm thinking about commonly held conspiracies like the moon landing or flat earth or things like that, that can be proved scientifically. What is it psychologically that wants us to believe conspiracy theories? Yeah, well, I, I, it's a big question uh, that there's a lot of work going on about this. One of the big things that's come up is uh, the, the idea of a sort of conspiracy mentality, which I think I, I kind of referred to earlier. And this is just the idea that people have a greater or lesser tendency to believe in conspiracy theories in general. So it's not necessarily that important what the specific theory is. It's more hmm. like some people are just more suspicious people. Uh, they're a little bit less trusting of, you know, not just the government or corporations or whatever, but also their their neighbors, their coworkers. Um, they, they just find people to be less trustworthy and more likely to conspire. And, and people who have that kind of mindset are just more likely to look at the world and see a place where conspiracies are, are common, that people can carry them off, uh, you know, fairly easily. And, and things like that. So to some extent, it's almost an ideology. You know, you hmm. talk about how liberals and conservatives might see the world in different ways. And there's kind of a, an aspect of that to conspiracy theories as well. There's a conspiracy theory uh, worldview in some sense. We're talking with uh, Michael Wood, who is a psychologist who studies conspiracy theories. And I, I want you to indulge me. I'm hoping that you can. I'm going to ask that you come here with me. Tell me about some of the craziest conspiracy theories that you've encountered as you've, as you've studied them. Mm, okay. Craziest conspiracy theories. Well, um, I, I love that old classic of the lizard people. Um, yeah. so this oh, is, yes. This is the idea that all of the, uh, the world leaders around the world are descended from ancient Sumerian bloodlines uh, of when the, the – these reptilian aliens, these sort of lizard people from another dimension who are recorded as the gods of, of Sumer. Um, they were actually, yeah, these lizard people and they intermarried into the, the sort of royal bloodlines of, of Earth. And now their, you know, descendants are controlling us. And if you, you know, the people who are really into this, like there's one guy, David Icke, who's sort of the big author in this. And he does all these sorts of genealogical charts. And, and he says, ah, you know, if you go back X hundred number of years, um, you know, uh, Donald Trump is related to the Queen of England. And that means that they both come from this like Sumerian bloodline and they both got a bit of lizard in them. Um, I'm gonna, so I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to stop you, Michael, because I asked for conspiracy theories, not real things <laughs> that uh, yeah, have occurred. So, <laughs> so maybe try another one because the lizard people, that's real. Okay, um, Finland doesn't exist. That's one. Wait, um, what? What? Yeah. So, have you ever been to Finland? My husband has. Yeah, he ah. he was he lived there for two years. How does he know it's oh. Finland? No, 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 no. That that means they got to him. He's part of the conspiracy. Oh, now. oh, that well, that explains a lot. Let me tell you. Yeah. Well, this this is why he thinks the moon landing is likely because he went to fly to Finland and he got pulled aside to a room by some suits and they said, "Look, buddy, here's how it is," and they give him the rundown. Oh my word! I've never heard that one. Yeah, you yeah. stumped me on that. That's so. <laughs> so so are conspiracy theories are they harmless? Should we just indulge them and kind of? laugh about it or 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 should we be concerned about it so uh, conspiracy theories are uh i think a sign that people feel comfortable um speculating about powerful people doing bad things and i think that that in that sense that they're they're a good thing to have around if people are free to come up with conspiracy theories that's a sign of a, a society where you can say stuff like that without fear which is usually okay um now you, there can be examples of conspiracy theories that go to really dark places about, you know, large groups of people um, conspiring. And, you know, we have to get rid of that sort of people now because they're all conspiring mm. against us. Um, or there could be conspiracy theories that are really directly harmful, like saying that, you know, vaccines are all poisonous. You shouldn't vaccinate your kids or um, climate change is fake and, and we shouldn't do any anything to, to fight against it. And those can be really harmful. And, the, you know, most people don't 
tend to believe those. But these are the sorts of problems where, you know, if you have a significant fraction of people who, who are into that, then mm. they'll they'll kind of throw off the, the collective action that you need to address big problems like uh, diseases uh, that are really widespread or, or climate change or, or things like that. Yeah. So what do we do? Because, you, mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned a couple there that are very important that we understand that they are real things and that we uh, almost kind of combat them. But when you try and tell someone who wholeheartedly believes in a conspiracy theory, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this goes back to the idea of, of conspiracy theories as an ideology, because you can't argue somebody out of being really into conspiracy theories any more than you can argue them out of being uh, liberal or out of, argue them out of being conservative. It's not impossible, but it's really hard because these are big belief systems that touch on a lot of aspects of their lives and people are going to be invested in them. Um, so, I mean, it's the same question, really, of how do you change somebody's general worldview. And that's hard. Uh, there's no there's no easy answer there. The best that we can do is make conspiracy theories about some of these specific things seem a little bit less likely. And some mm -hmm. of that is just about encouraging transparency or, um, uh, you know, making sure that everybody that we want to be trusted seems and is uh, as trustworthy as possible. So I'm wondering if in your research that you've ever come across like an example of a conspiracy theory that like that really changed the way that we, as a society, you know, look at something important like, say, government or even the history of our, our country. Can you think of an example like that that has been um, that's particularly like noteworthy? Yeah, absolutely. And this one is actually um, a conspiracy theory that is true, uh, which is Watergate. Watergate oh, was sure. the big the big um, point where a lot of people around that space of time said, wow, actually, the government can do really kind of awful stuff and try to cover it up. Who knows what other sorts of secret things they're getting up to? And that's where, in particular, the moon landing conspiracy theories really kicked off after Watergate, because all of a sudden, there was this massive distrust in the government and this idea that they can't be um, they, they can't be trusted to, to, to do what's right. Um, and in the U.S. in particular, Watergate was really an inflection point when it comes to conspiracy theories. Um, and so there, there is a responsibility, I think, on the part of, part of you know, people who hold power, governments and, and, and powerful individuals to, to be trustworthy because, you know, that's ultimately a lot of what drives conspiracy theories is a feeling of, of mistrust. And there are ways to combat that that, aren't, that don't have anything to do with conspiracy theories sure. directly. What, if any, conspiracy theories do you believe in? Oh, geez. Um, so <laughs> this is a safe I, I mean, place, Mike. I want you to know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So I think that um, I, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist myself. I'm pretty skeptical about them for the most part. I think that mostly they're they're not necessary as explanations. I do think that there might be. You know, some of the, the sort of uh, Gary Webb stuff about the CIA involvement in uh, drug trafficking in Latin America. I think some of that's pretty plausible. Oh, okay. Mm. There's been a lot of, uh, like, popular culture that's built around that idea as well, like, uh, you know, movies and TV and, and whatnot. Yeah. Well, conspiracy theories, for better or worse, they're very entertaining. And, right. you know, it, whether they're true or not, they, they usually make for good TV, if nothing else. Well, so I'm wondering, you know, how these spread and and – my mind immediately goes to online, right? Like social media, people share different websites, um, blogs, you know, all of that. And that's how people are collecting, you know, the truth people don't want to know. And with um, with the uh, the development of all these things, it can, it can be really easy to make a fake story look real. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, and, and I'm wondering as, as we... As we move forward, how can we tell if, uh, you know, distinguish between something that has been maybe artificially like doctored, doctored? Yeah. yeah and the real thing in that spirit of transparency that you're talking about? Yeah. So this, the, the, the real news, fake news problem. You yes. Know, what's real, what's fake. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So this is this is the thing. Um, a lot of conspiracy theories are very uh 
fixed on a particular point of view. Often they're, they're quite partisan. They have like a, a very political viewpoint. And the problem with um, the, the sort of information environment that we're in today is that it's a bit fragmented. And, uh, you know, you have people who are on per perhaps one side of the political spectrum and they'll trust, you know, source X, but not source Y. And people on the other will say, well, source Y is actually really good. And source X is fake news. Um, and that's difficult because then we don't have a, a common point of reference that mm -hmm. everybody can kind of trust and say, you know, this is okay. And then even if we did, there would be people who are just generally conspiratorially minded and they say, well, why is everybody listening to this one particular source of information? That's mighty suspicious. And so, you know, the, this is a, a very difficult problem. And, and yeah, being uh, the, the, the sort of online aspect has, has made this worse because, uh, you know, anyone can can put information out there online right. in a way that they they couldn't necessarily before. It's much more uh, decentralized. Um, so it, it's it's a tough problem, and I think a lot of it comes down to education and just um, teaching people from a young age to to think critically and to try to distinguish between you know claims that are plausible versus implausible, things that have good evidence versus bad evidence, um, you know, sourcing and, and and things like that. So a lot of it is educational. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. At the very least, to even just start having the conversation, right? You believe this? Let's talk about what this thing may be. Uh, in in our last uh, kind of parting comments, Michael, any advice you have if if there's someone who is really buying into something that we 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 feel like could cause themselves harm that we can uh, almost like an intervention, a conspiracy theory intervention? Any any advice? Any advice for, for somebody who might want to run an intervention? Yeah, to run an intervention or to have that conversation where you're like, I feel like what you're believing in is really causing yourself harm. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, there, there's been some work on, you know, what kind of ways you could try to persuade somebody to, to drop some sort of conspiracy theory that they're really into. Um, and it's hard. But the most important thing is just talking to them in some way or another, you know, um, even if if you're uh, doing an intervention, you know, that might seem very confrontational. If you're just talking to them as a friend, just having some sort of information that, that people are getting that isn't from uh, perhaps sources that already agree with them or, or that they've sought out because, you know, they, they don't like the the mainstream stuff that's out there and they've, they've gone and found some, some weird website or Twitter feed that agrees with them. Just, um, having diverse information in there and information that, that is more reliable in your estimation. You know, if you think that that's going to help this person, then that's, that's a good thing to do. You're listening to the Lisa show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Lisa show. Now, we all know we've got a lot to do. Maybe you got a lot to do today. With everything that we're balancing, whether it's kids or work, social life, personal commitments, it can seem impossible to get everything done, in, especially in one day, and not feel stressed about it. So we want a vacation. We might not need to set aside hundreds of dollars in several weeks to get our life back on track. Uh, time management coach Elizabeth Grace Saunders is here to talk about how we can take just one day off work and still reap the benefits of a vacation. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Now, you say you've been experimenting with micro vacations. Now, what do you mean by that? So micro vacation is where we take maybe a day or half a day and we use it for something really satisfying versus telling ourselves we need to take a week off and really go all out to have a vacation. So why, what are the benefits? Why take a micro vacation instead of, you know, a week or two weeks? So the benefits of a micro vacation are this. First of all, less prep. We all know when you're preparing <laughs> for a week off or two weeks off, the two weeks before and the one week after, you're like, ah! Um, so if it's just a day, a half day, sure, maybe you need to inform your coworkers about a few things, but it's not the immensity of pressure of preparing for that amount of time. And also from a cost and budget point of view, I know especially with families, sometimes you can't take a week of eating out or maybe being in a hotel, but two, three days could be perfect and give you that breathing space. You know, I think a lot of people think that you know, it takes you a couple days just to sort of unwind, though, and get out of the, the, the routine. How can we really maximize that 
that day or even half day, like you said, off by doing something really satisfying? Exactly. Well, I actually have a few tips for this. So first of all, to have the time to unwind, set boundaries and set limits. You absolutely should put away your on your out of office if you're going to be gone even for a day. And that can just give you peace of mind that you don't need to respond. I also recommend, if at all possible, not responding to text messages from work or other things that are going to make you feel mentally or emotionally connected, even if you're physically in another place. And then also, it can really help to have a change of scenery or just mix it up. So for example, I happen to live in Michigan and we have lots of lakes and just simply going to the shore, going to Lake Michigan, being in a little cottage, you all of a sudden feel like you're in this different world, even if you're maybe just a few hours away from home. So you have to plan these micro vacations. I'm thinking in my mind about how sometimes I'm just like, I'm done. And then <laughs> and then just walk out of the, the building. That's not necessarily what you're speaking of. Correct. Correct. So you want to plan it so it's satisfying, so you're not bringing work with you, so you're not um, fed up, and you're really thinking about what it is you want. And sometimes these micro vacations might be going to the lake and sitting on a beach or something like that. And sometimes it sounds so boring, but it's satisfying. Sometimes it might look like getting the oil changed on your car, um, finishing painting that little bathroom that's been half painted for the last six months, uh, going through and collecting up the different things around your house you want to donate and getting it done and then maybe going out for ice cream after and the idea is it's just being honest what do I need right now what's that thing that every night I go to bed and it's stressing me out and is there a way I can take a day or a half day to make that happen and really feel satisfied with my time off how can we maximize uh the the weekend and and doing like you know a weekend trip so in terms of maximizing the weekend trip, there's a few things that I think can help. If you can get off work just a little bit early on Friday, even if you can't take a full day off, that's really nice because it gives you the feeling of a whole extra day. So let's say um, you're going to the beach or something like that. If you can get there in time to have dinner, maybe watch the sunset, watch a movie before you go to bed, you feel like you had... Uh, basically a third day of your vacation, even if it's just a three-day weekend. And then also to really give you that sense of satisfaction and peace and joy, I recommend you don't pack your your vacation, quote unquote, too tightly. So if you can give yourself maybe a morning where you sleep in and don't set an alarm and you just enjoy getting up at leisure, or perhaps it's giving yourself a chance to just very leisurely um, go around little shops if you like doing that or be on the beach or whatever that looks like so that you have space. And then finally, to really end well and come back feeling refreshed, it's a good idea to try to get home by about dinner time, if not mm. a little before on Sunday. So you can, for example, unpack the things you have, maybe throw in a load of laundry, get the dishwasher unloaded. So when you start on Monday morning, you're not like, oh my gosh, the house is a mess. I don't have any clothes to wear. You know, we have no food. You're like, nope, everything's in order. It's set. I had a great time away and I have a strong start for the week. I've heard you mention it a couple of times about the beach and the waterside. Is that where your mind is? Is that where your mind is right now? Yes, you know where I'm going next weekend. <laughs> Holland, Michigan. Little little plug for our state. Beautiful, gorgeous shoreline. And uh, yes, I'm taking a micro vacation, leaving Friday, coming back Sunday this coming weekend. I know one of the things that's hard for people is to give themselves permission to do it, right? We're so busy. Oh, I couldn't possibly. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great idea, Elizabeth. But how can I possibly get the time away? Are there some things that we can do intentionally to uh, give us the permission to take these micro vacations? Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that question. So I have a few tips. Um, so number one, put it in your calendar. Like things have a way of fitting when you when you make room for them and you block them out. But if you never block your calendar, of course, meetings are going to pop up or other things you have to do. Um, number two, and this one is really powerful and something I actually used even this past month when I was making a decision about a micro vacation is when you think about it, if you look back over over this year, um, typically, if you had one more day of working or getting stuff done, you probably wouldn't remember it. 
it would just become this like blur in terms of days of working that you had. But if you took this micro vacation, you took a Friday off and you went to the shore, or you went to amusement park or whatever makes you happy, you went to a cabin and you had this amazing experience either on your own or with a friend or your family, you're going to remember that. Like that's going to be one of your shining moments of the summer. And so when you're looking at the cost benefit, sure, there is a cost to maybe one last day of working, but the benefit of having those memories and those things you're going to do often far outweighs that incremental cost of a day or a half a day that you took to not work. We're talking with time management coach Elizabeth Grace Saunders about micro vacations and how we can take a break and and feel rejuvenated in in, in simple ways, really, just to uh, setting boundaries and and uh, planning these out for for ourselves. Um, has your experiment with micro vacations made you more motivated or more productive at work? Absolutely, because I feel like oftentimes, maybe it's just me, I happen to be a time management coach, so I I do like to maximize my time, but I find that when you're home on weekends, you often can fill it with being busy, but with things that aren't necessarily work, but are still getting things done. So when you're home, you're more likely to think, oh, I should go to Target. Oh, I need to go to the grocery store. Oh, the house needs to be cleaned. Um, Oh, yeah, I should take my shoes to get repaired. And weekends can basically become a series of chores. And you're much less likely to think, oh, I can sit at the beach or the pool for hours, or I'm just going to read this book, or I'm going to go out to dinner. You're more in a, hey, I'm home. Let's get things done. And there's lots to do mode, which is fine. We need those weekends where we do get life done. But there's something mentally about giving yourself permission to go someplace, even if it's not far. Like I said, a two-hour drive, one-hour drive um, away from where you normally are that just opens up this space and this perspective to be like, I can slow down. This isn't my house. I don't need to be cleaning it. Um, I don't have to go to Target. (laughs) (laughs) I can just do these things that are fun and rejuvenating and, and just be present to that moment. And it's even better if you have really bad cell service, wherever you go on vacation, (laughs) like at first you feel like, Oh my gosh, my phone doesn't work. I don't even know how I'm going to get anywhere and what I'm going to do. And then after about half a day, you're like, this is the best thing ever like I'm in the woods of Michigan no one can contact me and uh, that sounds kind of scary saying that but <laughs> um, but don't worry it's, it's not like you're gonna get uh, have something bad happen but no one can contact you so you just have that mental decompression and that space to really get some perspective and hopefully unwind. For those who are thinking, you know, that could be great for lots of people, but I have too much work to do. You know, it, it's it's too hard to get all the prep done, even for a day off or to unwind or disconnect for a half a day or a day. You're a time management coach. How, how would you suggest that we use our time either more effectively or more focused so that that we can take a day off like this intentionally? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, from a mindset point of view, burnout is a real issue. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, we actually take a lot less vacation than a lot of other of other parts of the world. And so just from a macro level point of view, acknowledging the fact that you need time off, like it's not it's not really optional. <laughs> we hmm. all need some time off every year, whether it's a longer vacation or a shorter one. It's just something you need, I think is a really good first step. And then secondly, it is something you need to prepare for. So if you're really worried about work and getting things done, you can try to pick a time of year when maybe work is a little bit slower. And then I recommend a couple weeks in advance starting to think about it. So look at your calendar. Are there meetings or deadlines that might come around your little micro vacation? If so, either work in advance on them or see if you can switch your vacation or perhaps the deadline. Um, And you want to think through maybe a couple weeks in advance or at least a week in advance. What is it that absolutely needs to get done before I leave for me to leave and be at peace and leave work at work? And is there anything like, let's say you take a long weekend, Friday through Sunday, is there anything that's going to be immediately due Monday or Tuesday that you want to think ahead on so that you can go on vacation Mm. in peace? 
We've been talking about micro vacations, you know, the the afternoon, a day, a weekend. Um, I, I hope it's not putting you too much on the spot, but if I wanted to go on vacation for like three weeks or like four weeks, do you have uh, <laughs> oh some ideas as to how I could just completely disconnect and disappear? Yeah, so I do have some coaching clients that do that. I, I coach all over the United States as well as internationally. So um, there are other parts of the world where that's actually common. Huh. Um, so first of all, I mean, part of it is just cultural. So if you're in Europe or different parts of the world, that's like no problem. They're like, oh, yeah, of course, you're gone for all of August. Whereas in the United States, we would freak out. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Um so when you're going on a vacation that's that large, you need to think really differently about it. So that would be something where easily like three months in advance, if you're an employee, you need to be warning people about project deadlines, what's going on, ideally trying to finish major projects or get them to a point where other people can handle them before you leave. Um, if you're a business owner, you definitely need to warn your your clients, uh, let's say like three months in advance, like this is happening. We're going to plan our meetings and our our projects around what's going on. Wanted to make you aware. So, so you need to give people a lot of advance warning. And then basically I would recommend planning at least two weeks of margin. So what I hmm. mean by that is let's say you're going to be gone for four weeks. You When you're planning out your quarter, so the three months before, you want to plan as if you are trying to get everything done you needed to get done before that vacation two weeks in advance of when you're actually leaving. Hmm. The reason I say that is because we all know everything takes longer and things always pop up. So yeah. so don't plan like, oh, yeah, I'm going to wrap everything up exactly the Friday before I leave for a month. Like plan, I'm going to try to wrap up two weeks in advance. Um, and then when you're about a month off out from there, it's probably going to be down to I'm going to try to wrap up within one week in advance. And then hopefully by the time you're there, you're probably going to wrap up on time. Um, so give yourself lots of margin commit to much fewer things, you'll probably have to cut out all unnecessary, like not absolutely critical meetings from your calendar, starting at least the week before you leave. And just be very clear on communicating as well as having a plan of who you're passing off work to. Mm -hmm. So that while you're gone, people can be carrying the baton while while you're unplugged. I appreciate that. What I was sort of asking as a joke that you really enabled me to be able to think about how hey, I could take... this is possible. Yeah. You people do it. Listen, I'm gone. Uh, <laughs> Just August, give me warning. <laughs> uh, let's see. Starting Monday, I'm uh, going to go ahead. What about those for, who work from home? You know, we're, we're talking a lot about people who are in an office and need to get away, but, but how can you shift that mind frame uh, when, when home is really, you know, where you do all your work. Right, right. So that's something that obviously is nuanced, but I definitely understand having been someone that works from home for, gosh, oh, almost 14 years now. Um, so personally, like I set hours for myself. So I have certain hours when I'm working, certain hours when I'm not working. And I'm like, of course, there's some flexibility a little bit, but in general, I'm strict with my clients. So if I put out an away from email message, I'm away from email. It doesn't matter that I work from home. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll tend to that on Monday morning or when I'm back from vacation. Um, the same with like even work-related messages that might come through from other means like text or that sort of thing. It's like, uh, if, if it's an absolute emergency, I'll take care of it, but otherwise it will be during normal business hours. And then it's also true with things like um, giving yourself the opportunity to have a break. One thing that I help find to be really helpful, I know it's not always possible for everyone, but if you are able to have a home office where you have a place where you work and then you have other parts of your home for the other things you do, that can really help. And I find like if I have personal things I need to do on my laptop, say on the weekend or on a vacation, I try to just make sure I'm not in my office to do them. So I'll move my laptop to the the dining room table or to the living room and just try to be physically in a different space than mm -hmm. I would be 
when I'm working and also to make sure, of course, I'm not opening my business email. I'm, <laughs> I'm not, uh, not doing all those cheating because, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because when you, when you look at it and you know, all of a sudden you're thinking about it, but if it's shut down on Friday or shut down whenever you begin your vacation, you just don't know about it until Monday or whenever you check. So it's more of a, a break. Whether we're taking an afternoon, a weekend, or maybe we're setting out on that four-week-long vacation, you've given us a lot to to uh, think about and to consider. Elizabeth Grace Saunders is a time management coach and author of Divine Time Management. You can learn more at her website, reallifee.com. Coming up, more of The Lisa Show. Welcome to The Lisa Show. Christine Porath is with us this morning to tell us why a civil environment is not only good, but necessary for a successful workplace. Christine is the author and a tenure professor at Georgetown University. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. Why do you say that figuring out who you want to be will define your professional success? Well, I think it just really defines how you're going to show up and treat people. So if you're in the mindset that you care about people, you value them, you appreciate them, and you're going to do everything that you can to show up and act that way, I think it really sets a tone for your behavior. And, you know, everyone needs to be mindful then, of course, throughout the day, which is a challenge. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but I think, you know, really defining your goals and the fact that that's the way that you want to live is important. I like that we're starting this discussion on civility in the workplace and getting along with everybody with ourselves about being mm-hmm. mindful, like, hey, what kind of employee do you want to be? And it boils down to, well, what kind of person do you want to be? Um, and so beyond that, w- talk about incivility and, and how you think that it varies based on the person. What is it that we're talking about? Well, I think it varies a lot based on the status or power someone has. So we see huge differences. Uh, for example, two-thirds of the time, incivility comes from people with greater power or status. So they have more opportunities. Uh, they may think that they're being more leader-like in this way. Uh, and so that really plays a role, I think, in how incivility plays out in the workplace, at least. Uh, so that, that's one trend that we see as far as people, you know, feeling disrespected by those that maybe can get away with it more often. So if two-thirds of, of this kind of incivility in the workplace comes from somebody who's more powerful, you mentioned they might think it's, it's being leader-like. Can you explain yeah. a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yes, we were really surprised. One of the things that we were curious about is why are people uncivil? And the number one reason is people feel overwhelmed or stressed. Uh, Hmm. But shortly after that, nearly 50% of people actually claim that they're afraid of being nice at work or, you know, wondering if nice guys get ahead. And they believe uh, that they may be taken advantage of if that's the case. So, I was surprised at how skeptical or even cynical people were about being respectful at work. And so that's one of the things that I hope the studies dismiss (laughs) as far as it's a myth, because actually what we found in a lot of different research from biotech firms to huge global consulting firms to MBAs here and abroad is that people that are perceived as more civil or Mm -hmm. respectful in their environment are actually twice as likely to be viewed as leaders. Twice Uh, as likely. Wow. Yeah. So where's that disconnect? Why is it that we believe that in order to be a leader that, you know, I don't want anybody to take, you know, advantage (laughs) of me. Uh, But why why do we have that, that, that false belief? I think it's just a fear. You know, obviously there are some outliers out there that have got ahead uh, despite their incivility. I would like to say not because of it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we may anchor on to some of those people and say, well, they got there being this way. Or if in an organization or if in a law firm, a partner behaves that way, we think, oh, that must be the path to success. When in fact, uh, at least the research says that would not, that's not the case. I want to back up a little bit. You're referencing a study that you launched regarding incivility and performance in the workplace. Can you just tell us a little bit about that study and how you set it up and and what you found specifically? 
Sure. Well, the first study was with Christine Pearson, and we surveyed business school alumni, and so they were working in all different industries. We asked them to name one time where they felt disrespected, treated insensitively or rudely. They wrote a little bit about it, and then they answered questions about Mm -hmm. how they responded. And what we found is about 80% of the time, people lose time worrying about the incident. Over two-thirds of the time, people cut back efforts. 12% of the time, people left the organization because of this incident, even though they didn't necessarily even report it. And in another, you know, whole range of other losses, uh, since then, with Amir Eras, we've actually run experiments to try to show as objectively as possible, yes, this absolutely affects people's performance. And so we compare people that experience incivility to those that don't in very controlled settings. And what we find is that people function far worse cognitively, like a quarter worse, and they make significantly more errors. They're far less attentive, far less creative. Wow. So such a huge difference in performance if if people are working in a civil or an uncivil environment. Let's define that word, though. Um, What does it really mean to be civil? Well, it's tricky because it is all in the eyes of the beholder, so it's very subjective. But uh, it, so it really means that people feel valued or respected. Uh, when people feel unciv- like uncivilly treated, we feel like we're treated rudely, insensitively, uh, you know, dismissed, belittled, things like that. But I think it's really feeling like, you know, do you belong or not? Uh, you know, respect, I think, is the best synonym, but feeling valued is certainly follows that. And so I think we want to check in with ourselves and saying, are we making those around us feel valued? Uh, so you, in this study, asked people to recall incidences where there was incivility. Was that thing, did that manifest itself in things like comments or or just an attitude or was it a, a put down? Um, yeah, all of the above. So it really ranges pretty dramatically. So it could be something in a meeting where a boss belittled someone's efforts or mm. their work. It could be something um, where someone felt like someone intentionally withheld information from them, you know, cut them out of the loop so they felt excluded. Uh, it could be someone avoiding them. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, it could be a rude email, you know, mm. or a very curt email. So it really does range quite a bit, uh, you know, as far as how this manifests itself, both in the workplace as well as just in society. We're talking with Christine Porath about why a civil environment is necessary for a successful workplace. Um, So those who are listening are either... uh, employees or their employers, right? <laughs> and yeah. and they're thinking, oh, this could save me a lot of money. It could save me, um, it, you know, employ- employees in the long run. Because like you said, sometimes it, it goes unreported. What do you wish that employers, first of all, knew about civility and how to, how to cultivate it? Well, just how costly incivility is and that being civil it really does make a difference. Uh, and you will get more from people if you're respectful. Like they are better able to contribute their best, literally. They're more likely to speak up about things. They're not psychologically afraid of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll get their best if you treat them with respect and make them feel valued. So just prioritizing that. And I think the other thing I would stress is just that it comes down to really small actions. So this does not involve necessarily a lot of time or energy. We're talking about little things like smiling or saying hello, acknowledging people, uh, humbly asking questions, listening attentively, which is so challenging for most of us these days. But those are the little triggers for people that really cue them into, does this person care about me? Are they paying attention? Should I bother asking them a question? I bother sharing information. Wow. What about um, information for employees? Well, I think one is, you know, what kind of colleague and teammate and, you know, person do you want to be? Because I think some of the good news is on this that, uh, yes, you know, incivility spreads like a virus, but civility spreads too. So people pass this forward. You know, so if I'm nice to a colleague, they're going to probably treat other colleagues and our customers and clients well later in the day, even though they may not even connect those dots. And so you're really setting a trend. And so we have more control 
over our environment than we may think. And, you know, so you don't want people to get cynical. You want them to be the change that we're really looking for in society today. Um, you know, there's always that that one person, right, in in the workplace that even if everyone else has a has a good attitude, who is just rude and curt, or or just doesn't care, um, how how can the behavior of those around that that person influence change most effectively? Well, I think you know, sadly, I would say it comes down to self preservation. So if you're in a really toxic environment, I do believe that you know you want to inoculate yourself from that. You want to either avoid the person and so forth. But you know, prior to that, if if you have the courage, you know, giving that person the information about how they're being perceived is really helpful. Because one of my biggest learnings is that most of this stems from not bad intentions or jerks at work, Uh but it really comes down to a lack of self-awareness. So we may be doing things that are setting people off, you know, interrupting them, um, putting them down, talking badly about people behind their backs without even really noticing it. And so, you know, if you can improve people's self-awareness by having, you know, one-on-one conversations uh, where you're willing to step up and give this information, Feedback is really a gift, like Kim Scott's radical candor. I love that idea where you are caring personally, but you're challenging directly. You know, you are giving them the information to act on. Uh, well, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that, this radical candor. Um, <laughs> in, in order to create an environment that is not only civil, but also just encouraging and positive, what are some specific things that we can do? Because I feel like that it has such um, application not only in the workplace, but in our home environments as well. Well, I think, you know, Doug Conant has talked about the idea of touch points. So if we're doing these little things that I mentioned, I think it makes people less intimidated by us and more willing, less defensive to hear feedback. Mm -hmm. So those things really set the table for having radically candid conversations and a culture. And then, you know, as far as the radical candor, if you've shown that you care personally, it's much easier, especially to receive, but also to give you know, feedback that might be difficult to hear, you know, because you are really providing some kind of constructive criticism, but you're letting them know that you want them to achieve their best and that you, your team, your organization, or your family uh, are going to improve, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, the culture is going to improve if they take these small steps to correct something. And so I think it's it's part of the spirit in which you deliver Hmm. it, but I think a lot of that spirit is set by again, our actions beforehand and the fact that we showed up like we care, right? They they know what kind of person we are. And so I think that that really helps leaders or parents or coaches uh, along the way. It just sounds like something that you can't fake. (laughs) You know, that's something that has to have that real intent behind it. Uh, You mentioned some small actions like smiling, um, saying hello, really listening intently. Um, What are some other... uh, often overlooked small actions that can have a big impact in creating a civil environment? Well, I think sharing credit is one easy Mm. thing. I think thanking people is hugely underestimated, and sadly, people don't receive uh, enough of that. It makes a huge difference to people. Uh, So those are a couple things. I think also the idea of listening attentively, the putting your phone away and really tuning in, which makes a huge difference to people as far as even, you know, how they feel valued, uh, how, how you care about them, the fact that you're more trustworthy and like-worthy. So small actions like that make a big difference. Uh, from your studies, uh, what do employees want from their leaders? What did you identify? Well, respect. So we surveyed over 20,000 people working across different organizations, and the number one thing that made a difference in the range of outcomes uh, was this idea of respect. This was more important to people than things like uh, useful feedback, opportunities for learning and growth, uh, recognition and appreciation. So very powerful how desperate almost we are to feel respected and valued by our leaders or those around us. So how does that look? How, How could they accomplish that? 
Well, I think it does matter <laughs> how you're interacting with people. So, okay. you know, one of the things that Ashner Healthcare System found was something small they started, which was the 10-5 way, in which if you were within 10 feet of someone, you were to make eye contact and smile. And if you were within five feet, you were to say hello. They found that civility spread, patient satisfaction scores rose, as did patient referrals. So it's these little things Mm -hmm. of, you know, I've heard people in major organizations complain about, you know, people get into the elevator and look down. No one ever says hello, you know, and you're thinking, wow, that really sets people off in a negative way at the beginning of their day. Uh, And so, you know, it, it comes down to little things where we're being human and connecting with people in small but meaningful ways. You know, we want to make connections. We talk about this on the Lisa Show a lot about how those meaningful, authentic connections with people, it's what we're all craving, and we're clearly not all getting enough of it. Having it in the workplace by doing a few simple things seems like... Uh, you know, a no-brainer right now of of, of where to start. Um, you know, you've done all these studies. You've talked about civility and the negative effects of incivility in the workplace. Um, helped us to understand, paint a picture for us, if you will, of what a civil environment would look like and what an ideal kind of work-life or workplace um, relationship would look like. Well, I think, you know, I study creating a thriving workplace. And so some of the things that matter most are, yes, these small actions at the beginning of days and throughout the days, Mm -hmm. but you're sharing information. So a leader that's actually transparent and is vulnerable and, you know, that matters to people a lot. Um, Providing feedback, you know, as we talked about with the radically candid spirit uh, matters a lot. Uh, you know, empowering people. So, you know, they know kind of what the values are of the organization. For example, treating people right or with respect will set them forth so that they deliver on that. You know, the fact that they feel empowered uh, clearly matters. Uh, and so I think, you know, those are some of the other things. And then, you know, taking care of people. And so from a leadership perspective, like caring about people's well-being, you know, whether that means um, providing you know, work-life balance or providing opportunities to um, engage them, you know, and, and kind of heighten their physical, emotional, mental and spiritual sides. You know, what are you putting in place or encouraging. Uh, and leaders really need to not only encourage this stuff, but role model it. So we find mm-hmm. that that's the sweet spot. It's not enough for leaders to just say, you know, we have these programs or policies in place. It's not enough for just the leader to, you know, be doing triathlons and be doing you know, stuff which, which may <laughs> improve their well-being. It's right. actually both, right? So you have the time and energy, uh, but also, you know, you see people living these values, whether that means they're radically candid um, or they're working on their well-being. Those things really translate well into uh, creating a thriving workplace where, you know, people really feel respected and they feel comfortable bringing their whole selves to work. Well, thank you so much, Christine Porath, for joining us and for telling us what the the effects of incivility bring. And not only that, but giving us hope by laying out what a really civil environment can do for a company, for a business, and for individuals. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Christine Porath is the author of Mastering, Mastering Civility, a Manifesto for the Workplace. You can buy her book at Amazon.com. You can find The Lisa Show on our free BYU radio app. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. 